Most of us enjoy wandering through a park, seeing trees and shrubs, sending up new growth or watching the changing colours of autumn or just spending time on our own in our garden. Why do we feel better for doing this? Professor Alison Holbrook, who has undertaken a research study entitled The Green We Need at the University of Newcastle, has joined me today to tell us about the importance of green in our lives. I'm Iris Nichols. Thank you for joining us. Alison, thank you for coming in and giving us the time and welcome to the program. Thank you, Iris. Tell me first about the study and what prompted it. Well, as you indicated in your introduction, Iris, there's much anecdotal evidence that being in green spaces like gardens has a positive effect. Gardens and parks have been such a common feature of the landscape, we basically take them for granted. But how much hard evidence is there that links health and well-being and green life? That was the brief I was given, to find out what evidence had been generated by the research, how much could be said with confidence about the connection between health, well-being and green spaces, and to create a database of this information for use by town planners, health professionals, garden designers, the industry, students, and indeed anyone interested in the area. And the point was to find the information to disseminate it so it could be used in practical ways and to highlight where new research was needed. How did you get involved? Well, the Sortie Centre at this university, mm. it's been around for about eight, eight years now, was approached by the Nursery and Garden Industry Australia. They're known as NGIA, and they mm. represent a wide range of groups. Now, Sortie's a research centre that actually investigates how research is taught and applied. We're quite unusual. So um, my background, of course, is not in horticulture and um, I'm not in planning and I'm not in health. I actually research researchers, you know, so, and I research how research is used. So I was approached from that perspective because I've mm. done many big studies like that. But I have to admit, I really do enjoy my own garden, so this was a very pleasant research opportunity. Do you think it's only recently that we've begun to realise how important parks and gardens are to us? Look, it's not that recent in that there's a substantial history of research on parks and mm. on gardens um, and on landscapes, but it is mostly that, really. It's histories of these things. It's, it's cultural studies of them and so on. Um, in terms of empirical studies about the connection between health and getting mm. hard evidence, it is a f relatively new thing. You know, I, I actually found... I was, my brief was to, um, to uh, get articles from about 2000 and have a look at them because they'd be very relevant mm. to our current urban circumstances and I found about 700 items that were actually addressing health and parks and gardens but only 171 of them actually had hard evidence so that's what I whittled it down to. As the pace of life increases I think as the cost of health care escalates there's a real pressure on open spaces mm. as well as the population grows so I believe there's been a heightened awareness and an unease um, that we have taken for granted the gardens and the green in our communities and that these may now be under threat and that something important might be being lost. So I think actually in the last eight years, and you know my graphs tend to mm. show this, there's been a really heightened interest in research in the field. What do we really benefit from going out into the garden? Well, I can actually, you know, if you don't mind me citing a list of research here, because of what we actually know, up until this point, we did, couldn't know for sure the following. And, uh, you know, I hope this is exciting enough mm. because, because there isn't a lot of really hard evidence about health. In fact, when we go into look at gardens specifically, your own garden and your mm. own health, there's only five studies 
that actually measure appreciable impacts on your health, like blood pressure or whatever. And they're fabulous studies and really fascinating and very high quality, but not much. So what I'm going to tell you is the things we do know for sure. Some some people will feel that they know these already, but at least we know now Mm. we know them. Um, So people prefer natural environments. We know that for sure. That if they have nature in close proximity or just even knowing it exists is important regardless of whether they're regular users of that nature. So they just need to know it's there, Mm. hence the green we need, you know. Um, People have more positive outlook on life and reveal higher life satisfaction when they live in proximity to nature. There's many studies that do establish that. The majority of places people consider favourite, their favourite places, you know, what's your favourite place, um, are natural and they're recuperative, you know, forests, sitting on the balcony looking at a view, Mm. that kind of thing. There are beneficial physiological effects, so we know that there are, you know, you you lose weight and and you do have reduced blood pressure and so on. Um, Natural environments foster recovery from mental fatigue. That is very, Mm. very well established. They're restorative. Um, There are established methods of nature-based therapy. So there's a growing body of work now about, well, these these therapies work if you you immerse people in nature, particularly older people. And um, exposure to natural environments enhances the ability to cope with and recover from stress and to recover from the stress you're going to have. And um, so it's subsequent stress. So if you, you have a bit of a fix in the garden on the weekend, you're probably setting yourself up for the week. Do you think that doctors should be prescribing people to go for a walk in a park if they if they know their patients are under stress? Do you know, I wish I knew how many did that. Mm. Um, we don't. Uh, but I'm sure that doctors, from their innate understanding of what you know mm. makes makes people recuperate, yeah. probably would make that suggestion. Um, you hear about them saying, you know, you've got to get out and walk, and if you only go around the block, or, or words of that effect. Mm. But we don't hear them say, look, take yourself off to to King Edward Park or wherever, and just walk in the park. Do you think that maybe that would be beneficial? I think we know it's going to be beneficial. Yeah. Um, people can't help themselves. This 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 innate relation to things natural mm. is actually, it's got a term. It's called biophilia, and it's well established. So we do recover when we're exposed mm. to green. Um, one of the most highly esteemed studies I found shows that, um, for example, um, moderate to energetic gardening activities. So, you know, when you're yeah. pulling weeds through to just a bit of raking and a bit of hoeing and so on, can produce the level of exercise necessary to reduce the risk of mortality in high-risk people. So people who've suffered strokes or whatever, yeah. it can reduce that very substantially so they survive longer. And um, survey data indicates that gardeners have higher life satisfaction, mm. and they rate their health better than non-gardeners. Yeah. So I think doctors probably have it right if they do say, go for a walk in King Ed- Edward Park, and I hope they're doing it. <laughs> we hear about housing estate and areas like that that are being developed. Do you think that the designers are putting enough emphasis on green space? I, I, look, truly, I don't know how much emphasis they're putting on. Uh, studies don't look at the emphasis, but there is a very strong body of literature that says they are interested, mm. you know. Uh, and uh, I think that they're typically, green spaces are typically features of planning. They're typically mm. features of development. But when developers, for example, come into an established area, there needs to be a strong appreciation by that developer that there is an attachment to that area by the local residents in some form Mm. and that they might not know what this is. And so 
kind of the the connection to green spaces is complex. It cannot be forced. It has to be there. You know, yeah. you can't just say, I'm going to put a green space in the middle of your little town centre, mm. so use it. You know, people won't use it if they have no attachment to it or, mm. or, or no reason mm. for using it. Um, now, I think also, too, the things that are forgotten in this argument is that maintenance is an important consideration. So there was this wonderful pioneering study where they developed this new, um, you know, new, new development and they had wonderful bushland areas around it, but they assumed that the residents would maintain it. Well, what was the obvious thing? It got denser and denser and less and less salubrious and was the source of many complaints. So what did they then do? They went in and they just reefed it all out and <laughs> then there was not a green space that anybody liked. So you, you know, just because there's a lot of green doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good. You're listening to Wellbeing and my guest today is Professor Alison Holbrook. Alison, having parks available to wander in and around has been there for examples like um, Windsor Great Park in, in England and Hyde Park in Sydney, and of course there's lots more that I could mention. But when these were planned by the landed gentry in italics, were they simply following a natural instinct, or was it a need of such places that, that they developed? You know, oh. was the, Were they using it so they could put deer in it and go hunting or whatever they did, or were they simply following the instinct that we need green space? Oh, I think they, a lot of them were thinking, this is my space and my territory. You know, mm. big is good because it, it says a lot about me. But I think you're right. Once again, it comes to this innate feeling that that green and nature, I mean, this, this is very much a 19th century thing as well, mm. um, that green and nature has very positive benefits and that it's, there's something very noble about it as well. So, you know, I think the, these, um, these impressions of what the big estates, were, they were producing beauty. It was the aesthetic, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. We still don't really understand the creative potential of the garden and how this mm. contributes to our satisfaction as creative individuals. Yes. I mean, even on, in our own small patch, we go out and we set out our garden and, and some of them are just absolutely beautiful. Mm. Um, and the satisfaction is there for the people who, who just potter. Yes. And I think that maybe that's a natural instinct in all of us. Oh, I, I think certainly wanting to be in contact with the soil in one way is a very mm. deep-rooted instinct. Mm. Um, and we do know, look, there's been some really, really interesting studies in Australia. I mean, Australia's been a real pioneering area for looking at backyards, for looking at how people connect with plants. So rather than thinking of plants as things we manipulate, mm. how do plants manipulate us? You know, mm. we have um, this fabulous weed growing in the garden. <laughs> what do we do? You know, it's there. It's, it's stating its presence. Yeah. We have to react to it in some way. So the thing is that there has been some lovely stuff about um, how we connect with gardens. Mm. And by that connection, that deeper connection with nature is established. And, um, you know, I, I, later on I, m I might talk about children and, and this, but this, if this is established mm. really early, you have it forever. Do you think that the way housing is being um, planned these days, that they're big houses on the same size block, not much in the way of gardens, mm. is this an adverse effect for us? Wow. You know, I mean, Professor Tony Hall from Griffith, um, would certainly say so. He just finished a very interesting study. I'm not aware if people know about it last year. And um, he actually showed just how backyards shrink are shrinking in the new mm. developments. You just have to walk around Newcastle a bit, don't you? And you can yeah. see houses have kind of 
gone into their front gardens and now they're right up against the street yeah. and that there's kind of a garage there in your face and nothing much else. Yeah. And uh, people will argue that, that what's happening is that it's this kind of, um, you know, mentality where you're blocking off ev- all the outside and the streetscape, which leads to things like more break-ins and so on because yeah. people aren't surveilling the street, you know. It's not their, their normal thing anymore to just hang over the fence and, and check out who's coming up the road. And I think also, of course, we've gone much more into the units, high-rise units, um, which leaves us without any yard except a couple of flower pots on the on the veranda type thing. You know, though, we don't know the impact of flower pots. I know that sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but but really, a garden is what you make it. One of the interesting things I found in the literature, and I was looking for curiosities as well as the big the big data. I was thinking, where can we go here? And um, the thing is that people are very flexible about what they think green is, so they might get an enormous amount of pleasure after, out of half a dozen pots, you yeah. know, that they mightn't have got out of a lawn. So yeah. we, we can't make assumptions about what a garden is, really. What do you think it is about parks and gardens and flower pots that does draw us? What's the, the basic instinct, if you like, that drags us through? Yes. Well, once again, you know, I turn to the psychologists here. They have a theory called green fascina- soft fascination. So green, mm. when you, you're exposed to green, you become engaged in soft fascination. So your mind mo- moves into soft fascination mode. Now, when you're in a, an office or walking down a noisy street or whatever, there's so many demands on your mind. Mm. But there's something about green that switch makes this switch move and you end up being softly fascinated, which is not demanding on your mind. And uh, so that's why when you're in the garden, you often find that you've been gazing at a leaf or gazing at the sky or whatever mm. for some time because your mind has just been allowed to travel and uh, is softly engaged. I can remember a few years ago, I went back to England and I used to go back in the wintertime when the trees are bare and everything. And the last time I was there was summertime. And I was absolutely fascinated by the shades of green. Mm. It was wonderful just to drive through and see them. Mm. And I was talking to my brother, and he said that they sort of come alive in the summertime when there's all this greenery around them. So it's obviously something tangible. that mm. you can, Even if you're not really aware of it, it's still there. Oh, yes. I mean, and we just have to go back to pagan times to know that that kind of reawakening of, of deciduous trees yeah. has a real impact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think probably we all look forward to springtime when the, the new leaves come out in whatever guise. Mm. So I think that maybe the, the studies that have been done and are being done are definitely on the right track. You know, they, they do tell us to go out and enjoy, I Well, guess. they tell us to trust our instincts, yeah. don't they, really? Yeah. Mm. Going back to the garden thing, and you mentioned it earlier about particularly the older generation and their spending time in their gardens. Mm. Is it just that they're communing with nature that sort of brings out these benefits that quietens their life? Look, no, there, there are other things too. Um, when you get older, a lot of people say when they retire, ah, now I have time to do my garden. The garden provides a really interesting transitional point it's something to get engaged with it's something 
you've always wanted to get engaged with. You know, mm. I mean, some mm. of course some people don't do this, but you you hear that in a general, lot, don't you? Mm. Um, the other thing is that gardens are a source of social systems. So you probably know a lot of people who swap cuttings. Gardens yeah. provide a source of conversation. They provide social connection. Mm. The other thing, of course, about um, uh, gardens is that they do give you the opportunity for physical activity. But, you know, it's, it's sometimes a cup half full, half empty, because also, too, even if you've got a, an abiding love of your garden, that if when you get older and lose a lot of physical capacity, it becomes a worry. And you hear a lot of older people saying, oh, you know, it's such a worry because I don't know how to keep it maintained. I, it disappoints me that I can't do it. And they take on this kind of, um, this, uh, you know, I, I really re- re- this regret about their garden, which was never present before. So there's... Um, other material too about aged care. Are you interested in that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a, a, a quite big body of um, work on um, gardens in aged care settings, and uh, some are recuperative settings, some for dementia. Um, there's a lot of work now being done on what is the best kind of garden for dementia, um, you know, because there's special needs yes. for those groups. Um, but uh, in terms of aged care, Look, it's, it's things, simple things like vistas onto gardens, building your yeah. units so that people see green. It has incredible effects. And the few really hardcore science studies that have been done show that a, a period in the garden can increase mental acuity. So you become more able to concentrate after you've been out there, even when you're quite elderly. It's, it's quite a, when you sort of get into it, it's quite a fascinating topic. Mm. And you often hear of, a lot of people, and in this day and age particularly, about them saying, you know, I grew my own lettuce or I grew my own potatoes or whatever. Mm. And there's a, a satisfaction that, that goes with that, mm. um, just on the ability to have been able to use their garden. Yes, yes. And in fact, um, uh, that's the case with new migrants too. You know, it's yes. a transitional point for them as well. They, mm. they kind of use their garden to bridge the old and the new sometimes using their old plants from their old na- their, their, their previous country, but also bringing their children into a new environment. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols, and today I'm talking to Professor Alison Holbrook. Alison, we've mentioned about the benefits to the older generation, but we're hearing a lot now about schools that are developing gardening areas for the children, getting them involved. Are we now getting into the point where we're introducing children not just to the satisfaction of growing a plant or watching them grow, but to enhance that feeling of, of well-being? Mm. I think I mentioned before that if, if you can connect with nature and green from a very early stage, it will have lifelong benefits. They've looked at that. Mm. Um, and when they ask adults who feel very high levels of well-being, they often indicate that as a child they had a connection with the garden and they mm. had an identity relation with it too. Because, for example, some of your favourite childhood memories are connected around green spaces, about going to the forest, about bushwalking, about going to the park, about walking the dog, about meeting your mates. So uh, those things go with you and so you want to, you want to reproduce them as you get older. Mm. So you keep going to those places. And so, yes, in childhood, if you have a connection with green, it's not only that fabulous connection with nature, it's a connection with other things about your area, your identity, your friends, and so on. Do you think that um, as a result of this and the fact that the schools are building on this, 
does a lot to encourage the children just to mix in with one another where they might be in the playground they'll have their own little groups mm. if they're all working on a garden that sort of brings in that team feeling yeah. better yes look there's been some unfortunately the research is thin here in australia but there's been some really interesting research on school gardens and uh, community gardens in america and um some of the, that research actually does quite uh, clearly indicate that um, that inter-ethnic um, kind of tension mm. can be dissipated um, by working in the garden together. Mm. Intergenerational misunderstandings yeah. can be mediated yeah. by working in the garden together, um, that social contacts and connections are made. Uh, so it's not, as you say, not just about planting things. There are other life things to learn. The major um, research on children in gardens is about their nutritional learning. So in other yes. words, the school gardens schemes like the Stephanie Alexander scheme are all about building your knowledge of what you eat yes. and so on. So they're real nutritional benefits. But there's a few tantalizing studies that indicate that if you learn in a garden setting, your learning is actually improved. And then if you expose really young preschool children to a kind of wooded area or something quite mm. frequently during during term time they they develop better motor skills and they develop more appreciation of nature and they even develop better concepts of language and maths so wow you know i, w I wish we could build this research because that's really really important yeah, yeah. Mm. and and i think that unless we're in a position like we are right now that we don't appreciate that, that much we see the articles in the media about the children building their gardens and the benefit they're going to get but we don't think to take that the next step as mm. you have described yes and there's another thing too we, we make assumptions about children and green and the very few studies that have looked at children and young people so teenagers mm. when they use green spaces they use them for different things than adults so mm. we can't keep imposing what we think is good about green for mm. them and often they like the scrappiest little places you know those little corner parks or whatever and we think all oh, the kids are hanging out there what are they doing <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes but but often that's their most important social networking opportunity mm. and at the same time they're they're enjoying the space is there a need to put the message out to the general public if you like that the parks are there get in and use them for mm. whatever do we not give them enough credit in our general lives to encourage the young, particularly the younger generation, to go out and use our parks. I think the benefits of encouraging them to use parks are just really palpable. Mm. So I, I, I don't know that we're... we're I, I think the garden industry does a national survey annually, and I'm just moving from parks a bit back to gardens, but, but there is a revival of interest among young adults in gardens. Um, so I think they're, they're finding their own way there. But I think you're right. We can't make assumptions. We can't assume that people know just what the benefits are or how important this is to them. We have to try and raise awareness. And maybe the thing to, to ask people to consider is, you know, if you lost that green space over your back fence or next to the, the, you know, the bus stop or yep. whatever... What would that do? Mm. How would you be affected? Does it mean you don't have anywhere to walk the dog? Does it mean you don't have a, a, a you know, a calm place to rest the eye? Um, does it mean the kids have got nowhere to go? Does it mean that a memory you had of, of seeing someone there or meeting someone there is completely gone forever? Mm. What would happen if a green space that you know disappeared? 
The other thing that keeps going through my mind is if you live, and I can think of lots of places where there are streets with no trees, mm. they're just concrete, how beneficial would it be if the local councils or parks and gardens of, of the area made the effort to put trees in so that instead of having this concrete expanse, you now have the, the trees and things and watching the trees grow. Yeah. I've kind of got a mixed reaction to that one um, because actually trees are a source of unease for some people and we have to take that into account. They, they feel, you know, threatened by the branches falling or by the roots coming up through the, mm, <laughs> through the concrete and that's fall over. right. And yeah. also there's been quite a lot of research done on, on green places that make people feel uneasy. You know, and that is generational too. Older people feel uneasy in some spaces, young people in others. So that's a very interesting that we have to take all that on board too. But also it's not just, see, it doesn't have to be trees, does it? It could be shrubs. Yeah. It could be green walls. It could be green roofs. There's yeah. many ways to add green to an environment other than treescapes alone. I think though if you can walk down a, a street where there are even occasional bushes or mm. trees or whatever, there's a... I don't know. You enjoy going down there. You tend to drive down that street rather than go the next one that hasn't got any trees. I'm a bit sad you said drive. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you, you, but certainly we know from the research that if there is a green space nearby, you will walk more. Mm. I mean, that the connection between the amount of walking you do and the amount of green space in your area is very direct. Um, and uh, the other thing is that, uh, that if people think an area has ambience, and, of course, this is mm. where your trees and your shrubs come in. Yeah. Ambience, the front gardens, you know, they like walking yeah. down it or they like driving down it. And so they'd seek to go that way than some other way. I'm, I drive up back behind the uni every night to go home. Yeah. And I, I look at gardens with great interest. You mm. know, I think, oh, that one's changed. That's out in bloom, whatever. Yeah. And it adds just a little bit of something to my day. So you think that just the overall benefits of living in a city where there are lots of trees, and we can even take Newcastle as the example, mm. to living in the inner city of, say, Sydney or the big city metropolitan areas, that we really are better off in all sorts of ways? Even though we haven't done adequate work in Australia to look at that, overseas has. Big cities, much bigger than ours, overseas have uh, there have been major studies, and yes, the benefits of having more green, people who live in more garden um, you know, areas where there's more garden per head of population and so mm. on, they are benefiting. So you're right. If you're in a kind of sandblasted inner city area without a pot plant, you are going to be suffering from ill effects. You need the green. Professor, on that note of needing the green, I'm afraid we must close it. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your information with us. And all I can say is enjoy your drive home. <laughs> My guest today has been Professor Alison Holbrook from the University of Newcastle. As always, my thanks go to you for joining us. And until the next time we meet, this is Iris Nichols on behalf of the team wishing you well. <laughs>